Welcome to this edition of Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your guest host for this episode, Dr. Doug Ray from Baltimore, Maryland. Today I'm joined by Rod Schlosser. Rod is a professor of otolaryngology and director of the Nose and Sinus Center at the Medical University of South Carolina. We'll be discussing his recent publication, Eustachian Tube Dysfunction and Chronic Sinusitis with Comparison to Primary Eustachian Tube Dysfunction, a Systematic Review and a Meta-Analysis. This was first published in the July 22 issue of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. Welcome, Rod. Thanks for joining us. How's life in beautiful Charleston, South Carolina? It's great, Doug. Just got back from a, a little run on the beach. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a nice life. Now, I understand you just got back from Alaska. How was that? <laughs> much less humid and much more comfortable, but it was gorgeous. It's beautiful. I'd highly recommend it. Yeah, I'm sure the uh, climate was a little bit different than what you're used to. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But uh, did some great salmon fishing, kayaking around the glaciers. It was awesome. That's on my family's bucket list. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to try to arrange something like that in the future. So, but let's get, let's get down to business here. So I'm, I'm going to give a little background then we're going to talk about this uh, wonderful paper that you just uh, published as a little bit of background. We've all seen chronic sinusitis patients with likely station tube dysfunction in our practices and the pathophysiology of chronic sinusitis sort of logically can cause inflammation of the mucosa of the eustachian tube and therefore causes function as a resulting comorbidity of the disease. However, the link between the two has really not been established in the literature. The newly developed validated eustachian tube dysfunction questionnaire, or the ETDQ7, has allowed better characterization of eustachian tube dysfunction symptoms and it also provides a standardized way of examining outcomes in the treatment for eustachian tube dysfunction. Additionally, eustachian tube balloon dilation has become an increasingly popular treatment for eustachian tube dysfunction. However, the use of balloon dilation in patients with chronic sinusitis really hasn't been established in the literature, and consequently, there's a lack of information to guide clinicians as to when this should be performed in chronic sinusitis patients. So this paper attempts to answer many of these important clinical questions. So my first question for you is, Rod, is how did you get interested in this topic? What prompted the idea for the paper? Well, well Doug, you know, I think that the longer that I do rhinology, the more I kind of wonder about exactly which procedures should we be doing on which patients. And We've done some research and others have as well on like septoplasty, for example, and then turbinate reduction. Those are, those are obviously very easy procedures for us to do. The question is, when should we be doing them in order to improve our outcomes? And then with the, the um, kind of the popularization of the balloon dilation of the eustachian tube, we now have a relatively easy way to treat eustachian tube dysfunction that's becoming more widely accepted. Um, and in the past before, when it was just a PE tube, um, I don't know about you, but I always like to ignore the ear symptoms in my sinus patients. And so I didn't want to have to put PE tubes in and deal with drops and draining ears and all those other things. So I usually tended to ignore those symptoms and just focus on the nasal symptoms. So now that we have balloon dilation, um, you know, the question is, should I be doing this? We always, I, I think at least myself, I always kind of assumed that in my CRS patients, the eustachian tube dysfunction was secondary to sinus inflammation and kind of told patients, well, it, it'll get better if we treat your sinus disease and get your sinuses under control. 
but that was all kind of anecdotal experience. And so, you know, I, I just wanted to take a look, look and maybe do a deep dive into, you know, was this true? Was this anecdotal experience true? What, what did the literature have to say about it? And now that we have more balloon studies out there, you know, how do our outcomes compare? So, you know, is it a different disease or is it, uh, since it's uh, associated with CRS or is it similar to primary eustachian tube dysfunction? So those were kind of what prompted the study. Great. Eustachian tube dilation is balloon dilation is suddenly the rhinologist dream. We can actually potentially treat the disease. Yeah, exactly. And with, and with a scope, because we're already there in the nose. So it's a, it's a very quick and easy thing to do in contrast to to bringing in a microscope, to putting in PE tubes and that type of thing. Exactly. Well, so tell us a little bit about the methodology of your paper. This was a systematic review and meta-analysis, and we initially started off looking just at eustachian tube dysfunction and CRS. And so the challenge with that aspect of the systematic review is that uh, there are not a lot of papers that look at it. And some of the studies look at all CRS patients that walk in the door and say, what percentage of those patients meet criteria for eustachian tube dysfunction? And then others kind of parse that out and look solely at the CRS patients that that meet the diagnostic criteria. And then as we were kind of talking about this with our students that were doing the research and the literature review, we kind of said, well, why don't we compare this to the primary eustachian tube dysfunction? And the the best group that we had, the most well-defined and the best data is really those patients who have been reported recently in series where they've undergone balloon dilation. So we decided to uh, do a study comparing those two cohorts. Um, You know, some of the historical literature on eustachian tube dysfunction is the data is just not quite as good. So we kind of limited that to the folks who had undergone balloon dilation, and we just termed that primary eustachian tube dysfunction. Okay. Rod, can you summarize your results and, and what the reader can take away from these? In essence, the patients with primary eustachian tube dysfunction who underwent the balloon dilation tended to have more severe eustachian tube symptoms than the patients who presented with CRS who also had eustachian tube dysfunction. And in a way that makes sense because if someone is coming to you or I, Doug, as a as rhinologist, they're coming in with a chief complaint of sinus symptoms primarily. And then they might say, oh yeah, and I have ear symptoms. So it wasn't too surprising that their eustachian tube symptoms are not what's driving their visit. And so they did not score as severely on the eustachian tube dysfunction questionnaire. The patients who were presenting with primarily with ear complaints and who then underwent the balloon dilation, they had more severe symptoms. So that that wasn't as surprising, but there still were in in the series of consecutive CRS patients, about half of them met criteria for having severe enough eustachian tube symptoms to meet the diagnostic criteria for ETD. We then looked at, well, okay, in in the cross-sectional cohort are with and without polyps is there a certain phenotype that maybe we should be more sensitive to and say, okay, you have have polyps, you don't have polyps, which one's more likely to have eustachian tube symptoms? And we were unable to find any differences. So they, you know, it was around 50% across the board had eustachian tube symptoms. And then we looked at, you know, that question of when should we be doing balloon dilation? So we wanted to look at outcomes and the outcomes in patients who had the balloon Um, So primary ETD and underwent balloon dilation, it cut their symptoms in about in half on the questionnaire scores. If you look at the patients who had CRS with ETD and they only underwent 
sinus surgery. So we don't have sinus surgery plus balloon outcomes, but that's kind of the question. And that's where hopefully we're setting the, the framework for. If they just had sinus surgery, they had they still had a significant improvement in their eustachian tube symptoms, and they got back down into almost into the normal range, pretty much. So sinus surgery alone does improve eustachian tube symptoms, and that's kind of the takeaway. And it got those patients basically about to the normal range on average. So it didn't completely resolve their symptoms, but they did get a fairly significant improvement. Now, the question in my mind is, would they get even better if we did the balloon at the same time we did their sinus surgery? And that's probably an area for future study, but it does show that that doing sinus surgery alone does, does provide some benefit in ear symptoms. And that actually leads into my next question, Rod, is are you doing any other work in this area? What, what are your next sort of studies planned for this area? Well, we, we, we don't have any ongoing studies on that, but, but I do think, and, and, and hopefully folks who are doing balloon dilation, hopefully we have prompted folks to think about this and say, oh, should we be doing balloon dilation at the same time we do sinus surgery or not? Hopefully prompt some studies on that and looking at kind of outcomes and, you know, whether that be SNOT 22s or the, the ETDQ7, and hopefully we can start to collect some prospective data on this. You know, it's going to it's going to require a lot of patience in order to control for multiple factors such as polyp status, revision surgery, what's their adjuvant medical treatment, those types of things. So we don't currently have like an ongoing RCT or anything like that, but it certainly would be interesting to get a multi-institutional study and in, in a Hopefully the ARS and some other groups would, would get some interest in doing something like this because it's really important for our patients is, is you know, how do we optimize outcomes? Would, will, will, uh, would be doing balloon dilation, would that speed the resolution of those ear symptoms, which historically, at least I have always tried to ignore for the most part, but, but it may be a benefit for our patients if we, if we kind of did that and could speed their, their process towards, um, towards better quality of life. Yeah, and certainly when we introduce uh, a new device that can help us treat these patients, those are the important questions we we have to answer. Rod, real quick, just talking about potential limitations of the study. You acknowledge in your paper that most studies don't describe chronic sinusitis with eustachian tube dysfunction as a separate group. How important do you think this limitation was in terms of interpreting your results? Because you weren't able to parse that out, you know, in the studies that you looked at. Yeah, I mean, it's it's super important, Doug, because there's going to be, you know, selection bias in which patients you decide to to report. And so that's why I think it would be important to have a study where you look at, at basically all consecutive patients with CRS, you know, kind of say, okay, first off, what percentage of those patients actually have ETD? And then secondly, out of the ones that do have ETD, it would be awesome to have a comparison group between those who got balloon dilation and those who didn't. And obviously, like I was saying, it would require um, probably multi-institutional study with, uh, you know, multiple practitioners so that the results would be broadly applicable and relevant in order to determine that. And then, you know, I guess the other question, Doug, which comes up with ETD a lot of times is what about the tympanogram? And, And I'm not a neurotologist. Um, but we have published some, some work on, um, you know, the primary ETD when, when the balloon dilation was coming out. And some of these patients have normal tympanograms, but they have severe symptoms. And I don't know if that's just an earlier phase of the disease process where they have intermittent symptoms, 
but they don't have severe enough symptoms or it hasn't been going on long enough to develop an abnormal tympanogram. And so there certainly are a number of those folks who get better with balloon dilation despite having a normal tympanogram at, at, at baseline. So again, it raises probably more questions than, than I can answer, but it would be really interesting, I think, to say, you know, is that a requirement or does that impact their outcomes? You know, if you have a, a type B or a type C tympanogram, are you less likely to achieve improvement because you've had the disease for so long or it's been so severe? So those are all like questions, quite honestly, that, that the study doesn't answer, but I think it just sets the framework for hopefully a future prospective type study. I, I mean, those are great points, Rod, too, because I, I struggle. I, I'm doing both in office and uh, in the OR, station tube dilation uh, for my patients. And I do struggle with that because they meet the criteria based on their ETDQ7. But like you said, some of them have normal tympanograms and some of them don't. And which ones are, do we select out for the procedure? I, I think the patients that keep coming into your office every three to six months and you, I, I'm in private practice, so you probably see these patients less frequently because you're, you're a primary rhinologist, but the, these patients come into your office every three to six months because they need a new tube. Th those to me are more straightforward because you're going to try the balloon dilation just to see if, if, if you can get them so that they don't require a, a tympanostomy tube every three to six months. And for some of those that we have success, but what about the ones with the normal tympanograms with, with a normal looking middle ear, are they going to get better? I think those are really important questions. And, and, and I have another question for you in terms of your study, TMJ, TMJ is a really tricky disease in the sense that it, its symptoms are very similar in some cases to eustachian tube dilation. So you have a patient with a normal tympanogram and they may have TMJ issues. So those are potential patients that could be in your primary ETD group. How much of a factor do you think that is in your study, these patients sort of being a confounding factor? No, I, I think that's a great question because in most of the studies, the diagnosis of ETD was based primarily or solely on symptoms. And in a lot of the studies, you didn't have to have an abnormal tympanogram. So it, it is very possible that there is, um, you know, some confusion of the data or, or I guess some intermixing of the diagnoses there of TMJ. But I think that's just the real world problem, quite honestly, that we all face in that if we don't have uh, objective diagnostic criteria, meaning an abnormal tympanogram, then it's based purely on symptoms and, and clinical approach. I mean, obviously we're all going to palpate the TMJ and, you know, if there's a lot of tenderness when they open and close their jaw, then we're going to say, okay, it's probably TMJ and probably not ETD, but that's just a clinical judgment. And, and hopefully those, those types of judgments and, and, Clear-cut patients have been ruled out in most of the studies, but, the, but there certainly is the possibility that that, that has clouded the picture uh, with the data there. Excellent discussions. So, Rod, just to kind of round out our discussion, in terms of your approach now, how you approach your patients, and again, you're a, you're a urinologist, so you're seeing patients with primary chronic sinusitis. How do you approach the decision to do a balloon dilation in your patients that you see in your practice? So Doug, I, I typically, you know, I try to look at the exam. If they have a normal ear exam and their eustachia tube symptoms are kind of relatively mild to moderate and don't seem to be driving their visit, 
and their visit is primarily for sinus issues, I tend to not do the balloon dilation and tend to leave that alone. If they have an abnormal ear exam or abnormal tympanogram, or, or they say, you know, that their ear symptoms are really driving them crazy, and it's been going on for months, you know, it's not, not just kind of a, uh, a relatively short-term um, symptom, that, then I would definitely offer them balloon dilation with the hopes that we're going to make that symptom better more quickly. Um, and, and we have a, we have a discussion about PE tubes versus balloon dilation, you know, the risks and benefits of versus observation or, or just sinus surgery. And, and those are all kind of patient driven decisions, but I tend to, if it's mild to moderate in the normal exam, then I tend to be probably a little bit more conservative, but it, I don't know if that's the right approach. And that's kind of why we did the study. And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but the recent data about septoplasty has, has changed my practice. I tend to do septoplasties more frequently now because some of the data has shown, you know, synonasal outcomes and maybe even olfactory outcomes are better if you do septoplasties when indicated. So I don't do, do septoplasties in everybody, but I have a lower threshold, I guess. And so I think the same thing for the balloon dilation of the eustachia tube now is, is that it, it, it certainly improves symptoms. And, um, and so I, I don't know if it's, it's for everybody, but I try to take a personalized approach uh, based on their symptoms and, and their exam and, um, you know, for each individual patient. Do you find that you're getting tympanograms on more patients now uh, with, with the, now that we have the balloon available to us? Um, I certainly would have a, a very low threshold for doing it. Um, most of the time, uh, because of my uh, practice, the patients, they, they get referred in, they've already had a tympanogram um, if they have severe ear symptoms. So, And then one last question, would, if you're going to do a dilation, do you do it at the time of the FAS, the sinus surgery? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's when I would do it. Um, it certainly has been done in the, in the office and can be done successfully. And and um, is, is generally very well tolerated, but typically those patients are, if they're coming in for sinus surgery, I'm just going to do it all in one setting in the operating room. Well, great, Rod, that was an amazing discussion. And I really appreciate you joining me for an early Saturday morning conversation. Well, thanks, Doug. My pleasure. So this has been uh, a lot of fun. And, and Rod, again, I want to congratulate you and your collaborators on your excellent publication. I think it it really sets the stage for some future studies, and it really helps to answer some important clinical questions that uh, we all need to address in our practices. I also want to thank our Scope It Out listeners. This is Doug Ray for Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology, signing off for now. See you soon. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.